Erev Tov, good evening. I have been all over the place in the last six hours and I, my brain is just trying to get back into uh, Kara'i mode. So just give me a second to gather all my thoughts and my books in the right places. Uh, Hashem. We are going to be continuing today the introduction to the Ketar Shem Tov by Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. And there's a PDF attached to the Zoom invitation that you got or it's in the Google Classroom, wherever you have it. It's a PDF titled... Keter Shem Tov, 1 to 30. And on page, I don't actually remember which pages of the PDF. It says uh, 11 at the bottom in the Roman numerals. And there might be page 9 in the PDF, could it be? Anybody have the PDF in front of you and can help me out with the page number? What Roman numerals? Uh, it says 11, I think, if I know how to read my Roman numerals properly. It's page 9. That's page 9, okay. With the six, with the six uh, Yeah, 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 very good. That's exactly that one. So we're up to, we're up to, hey, number 5 out of 12. So we've discussed already the separation of the Kingdom of Israel. Between uh, Yehuda and Israel, we've discussed about the Samaritans, the Shomonim, the Kutim. We've discussed the Yassins and the Sadducees. We even dedicated an entire Shi'u to the birth of the Pirushim, of the Pharisees, and the problems that we suffer from today in the Jewish community because of the reactionary Judaism that is often found in the Jewish community. Today we're going to be dealing with another community. It's actually an interesting community, I think from all of the above, it's perhaps the only one that is actually operational. It's up and running, it exists. Yes, the Shomwanim do exist, I'm not denying their uh, existence. But in terms of Tzedukim and Pushim and those wars that were between the rabbis and their counterparts, the Karaim, the Karaites still exist today. And I want to just tell you off the bat that I am not a Karait. I am a Rabbanite, or a Pharisee, a Pirushi. And therefore, the history of the Karaites, my understanding of the Karaites, is colored and seen through the lens of our Chachamim. And I, as this is a community that is still alive and still here and still around, it's very important for me to tell you that I intend nothing negative to the community of Karaim. The Karaim, for all intents and purposes, are our brothers and sisters and as Jews. And if I say anything or anything that may be understood or misconstrued to be negative about Karaim, aside from the fact that we disagree with each other, I'm already now telling you, it's already destroyed and nullified. I don't intend to, to persecute anybody for their beliefs. Rather, I wish to share with you and to perhaps expose you to a side of the Jewish conversation inside of the Jewish community, which was the infighting and still is the infighting between what we might call rabbinic Jews and Karai Jews. Off the top of our heads, is anybody, anyone familiar with Karai Judaism? Karaiism? Yeah, anyone here ever? What, do you, what can you tell me about the Karaites? Something, somebody knows something about the Karaites. Okay, so they have it. They have it. They just don't accept they it. Have their own. Those who have their own, they talk about not following our laws, but they have their own 
Okay. It's not the way that the rabbis. Okay, so more dimensions they don't have an oral law. I said they do have an oral law, they just don't follow the oral law. And Betsy throws out there that they do have an oral law, it's just not the same oral law as our oral law. Right, Linazret Rafsadia Gaon wrote about them tremendously. In fact, that was one of the peaks in which uh, the Rabbanim and the Karaim were debating each other and battling each other. That's one of the most famous of them, correct? It's interesting to know that when you read accusations against the Karaim, even from Chachamei Israel, it will be wise that whenever you read an accusation of one person against the other, to just double check the information, just to verify it. What do we verify? Not Chasuzon because our Chachamim are lying to us. But because whenever you are hearing something about another person, forget Lashon Hara, the laws, I'm not talking any of that. You want to make sure that you're not viewing the other's opinion based on what the other has told you. So, for example, very often in the rhetoric that was thrown at the Rambam, our Rabbi Maimonides, very often the things that were said about the Rambam, he believes this, he said that, he wrote this. When you go back and you analyze those claims for yourself, it's not true. It's not true. We created this straw man Rambam. He's now being attacked. But if you were to go look in the writings of the Rambam, I mean, you might not like what you find, but it's not going to be what you say that he said. And it's important, whenever reading these works, especially polemics, one group against another group, to make sure you try, at the very least, to do your basic research, your due diligence, and make sure, are the things that are being leveled, the accusations that are being leveled, are they legitimate? Are they real? Are we saying what they're saying? And I think all of you are saying something true. The Karaim are perhaps most notorious to us because of their rejection of our oral law as being legally binding on them. And that's perhaps what sticks out the most. When we think Karaim, we think those who reject the oral law. The Mishnah, the Talmud, and so on and so forth. Uh, Betsy mentioned something correct, and that is they do obviously believe in the Torah in some way. So in order to read the Torah, you must interpret the Torah, and that interpretation we may call it Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, but they also have, in some way, a Torah Shabal Peh. And you should know there's more, it's more than just that. Hari the Karaim, the, perhaps the most famous group of Karaim that we still have today. Most of the Karaim in Israel seem to me that they come from the Karaim of Egypt. And the Karaim of Egypt have old customs. In fact, it's a Karaite tradition that they have traditions. So it's not that Karaites necessarily reject the concept of an oral law, and that varies in different places, in different communities. And like I said, I am no authority on, on Karaism. So if there's somebody else who's going to come and say, Yonatan Halevi was wrong, I am accepting myself that somebody that said is wrong. The purpose of today is to engage those who may not have been engaged previously with Karaim, with their faith, with their understanding, with their beliefs about the Torah, and to see how it affected the Jewish people in terms of splintering off and another division. You know, you have a Jewish people that's this large and you keep breaking people off and breaking people off, it's not that we stay this large and then we just keep splintering. Every time we splinter, we lose something from our main tree. Every branch that falls off, it's not just a branch, we're losing parts of our actual trunk of the tree. And Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is trying to show us that the Judaism, we're just constantly splintering off and splintering off and splintering off, ultimately there'll be nothing left from the tree. And I would say that even if we would like to claim that over this episode or the other, we're victorious, look, we survived. That doesn't make me happy. When I hear rabbis, uh, you know, spewing out all these numbers about reformed Jews and conservative Jews and who's going to intermarry, who won't inter, who have more Jewish grandchildren by the year 2053 and who's... Those statistics don't make me happy. 
It doesn't make me happy to say, look, my Judaism uh, triumphed over somebody else's. The hefech is a tragedy for me. It's a tragedy that we are able to project that we're going to lose this amount of people from our precious Jewish people, which is already this small. We're going to lose more. Why is that a triumph? That's a danger. It's a, it's a scary thing. We, there's not enough of us in order to keep losing each other. So today we're going to focus on the Karim. So let's see where Rabbi Shem writes. He writes in Hey on page 9 in the PDF. Hakaraim bimei hageonim. The Karaim who are in the days of the Geonim. Our, the Geonim are the rabbis before the Rishonim. So after the Talmud, before the Rishonim. So before the Rambam and before the Ramban and the Rashi and all the Rishonim, you have uh, the Geonim. The Karaim who were in the days of the Geonim, they deny. They deny the legitimacy of our oral Torah as is famous. And that is famous because everybody here already knew that when we mentioned it. They deny the oral Torah. Today I wish to discuss a little more about them, their history, why they deny the oral Torah. What do they believe in? And part of why it's hard to piece together this history is like the other previous groups that we mentioned. We have literature of ours about them. But the literature that they have about themselves, it varies in style, it varies in, in quality, it varies in how much of it we have, at which point Karaim started recording their history. Are Karaim a new movement? This is a good question. Are Karaim a new movement that were started by a specific group of people, or maybe even an individual at a specific point in time? Or are Karaim a collection of different groups of Jews who don't accept the oral law, and at a certain point in time, they just banded together and became organized. This question puzzles historians until today. In fact, I'm not certain that even within the Kara'i community, there is a consensus as to whether they are a group of Jews who always existed and only rebranded as Kara'im later on in history. I mean, are they just the natural descendants of the Sadducees? Or are they a new group? And this is pivotal to understanding some of the key figures. We're going we're gonna to get to this in just a moment. When Jews fight with each other, they don't always fight nicely. Yeah, I'm sure you're not familiar, but sometimes when people fight with each other, they say things, all kinds of things. And the debates between the Jews and the Karaites are most definitely full of some respectful conversation and some very disrespectful conversation. Uh, what do I mean disrespectful? It's pretty bad. It gets pretty bad. Uh, it gets pretty bad not just because of the past, but it gets pretty bad also in terms of the present. You have today about 40,000 Karaim who live in the state of Israel. So how many Jews are there in the world? Throw a number out. 15 million? 15 million, let's say. That's good. Baruch Hashem. If that's the number that we have, that's great. So out of those 15 million, I've heard... 9 million. I think you guys must be talking then about before the Holocaust or after the Holocaust because there's a 6 million person discrepancy here. I've heard 13 million, 12 million, 15 million, however many million. It's a lot of people, it's more than 40,000. What is... But Israel, I think, only has a population of some 8 million people, including Arabs. No, no, no. Last time I'm reading is 9 million. Great. If that's... I told you, the more the merrier. It's a triumph of the Jewish people. So, if you have millions of Jews, 
and 40,000 of them are Karaim. This is not a minority, this is a, an extreme minority. This is a, a very small group of people. We mentioned about other, the Shamoni, maybe a few hundred families. Here you're talking about thousands, but it's still not a tremendous amount. Around the world there are Karaim also. So California, for example, has a Karaim community. There are other places in Europe that have Karaim communities. Israel has the largest. I believe Israel has 11 or 12 Karaim synagogues and, and centers. Yeah, there's a main one and other ones, Ramle, Yerushanaim, in different places. But the Karaim, together with the other 10,000 Karaim around the world, are about 50,000 people. You should know there was a resistance for a very long time in the Karai community that even though they accepted rabbinic Jews as Jews, but they were afraid to allow rabbinic Jews to marry into their community. Why? Not because of Judaism, yeah. Oh, very good. Oh, you know, Betsy, you're right. There, there was conversation among Karaite scholars about whether or not Jews are actually you know, in terms of their lineage, able to be married into the Karim. Ironically, that conversation has been turned upside down in the other direction. But uh, there's just the fear that, you know, I'm, I'm a little puddle. If I allow the ocean to join the puddle, the puddle is going to disappear. And the Karim were concerned, and rightfully so. That has changed recently. And two things have changed recently. So aside from the fact that Jews, rabbinate Jews, marrying Karai Jews, there's also been another development, and that is that Karaim have begun in certain communities performing conversions to Karaite Judaism. And what that means is that anything that our rabbi said about Karaim, they are Jewish, can you marry them, or can you trust them for kashrut, whatever else it would be, would really only apply to Jews that we would consider biologically Jewish or converted to Judaism through a proper bedin. And this is going to create a whole new level of conversation and confusion in the future of who are Karaim and what are Karaim. But for right now, when I say the word Karaim, I'm referring to what I'll say, Karaim Yuchasim. Karaim who have a lineage, a tradition, they're part of the Karaim people for many, many generations, and that's not a question about them. What does the word Karaim mean? Very, uh, writing, so say a little better than writing. Like like the readers. Oh, very good. Yeah, no, ka. What's the ka? The ka, the mika. What do we call the Torah? The Torah is the mika. It's a new thing that people say chumash. What does a chumash mean? People say they study chumash. What does it mean to study chumash? What does chumash mean? The five books. The five books of Moshe. But... No, chumash is one of the five books. Chumash is, I'm studying the fifth. It's the chamisha chumshei Torah. The five chumashim of the Torah. So we used to say Torah or Mikra. Mikra was the correct word to say. People study Mikra. Kind of like people say, I study the Navi. What do you study Navi? It says in the Navi. What is Navi? Navi is a person. A Navi is a prophet. Navi'im are the text of the prophets. It's like you would never say, I study Katuv. The Katuv says, the Ketuvim. And you would say, Kamosh Katuv, right? but you wouldn't uh, say it like that. The Karaim originate in their name, they're part of a group of people who believe in the written law of Hashem given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Hazina. This is a fact. And because the Karaim believe in the written law, there are some unique things to Karaim that some of the other groups don't have. So for example, it is my understanding that based on the book of Daniel, the Karaim do believe in the Mashiach. The Karaim do believe in an afterlife. Unlike other groups which didn't believe those things because they view those to be of rabbinic nature, 
the Karaim accept the Tanakh in its entirety. And because of that, they believe in concepts like the future, the next world, Yemot Mashiach, that other groups that splintered away from the Jewish people didn't necessarily believe. Another thing is we are familiar with a rabbinic holiday that we're about to celebrate. Which holiday is that? Purim. Is Purim a rabbinic holiday or a biblical holiday? It seems rabbinic, but it's mentioned in the Tanakh. Is Hanukkah a biblical holiday or a rabbinic holiday? It's rabbinic, for sure. It's not mentioned in the Tanakh. Very good. Hanukkah is not celebrated by the Karaim. In the when I say not celebrated, it could be that Karim and Israel go to Hanukkah parties and their kids go to Jewish schools, so there's a, a you know, Hanukkah celebration. I'm not referring to that. Meaning, in terms of their religious faith, they don't celebrate Hanukkah. Purim, though, they do. Because Purim is mentioned in Megillat Esther. And therefore, Purim is a holiday in which they celebrate. And so we have to be very clear that when we discuss the Karim, we don't confuse them with any other groups of people that we may be thinking about. Karim are a group of Jewish people who believe in the Tanakh, they believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. they believe in reward and consequence, they believe in the afterlife, they believe in Mashiach, they believe in all of the things that we believe, with a major exception of the Torah Shabbat Pes. It's not a minor exception, it's a major exception. In fact, the Karaim almost believe entirely in the 13 principles of faith. They have, on top of the 13 principles, maybe two more principles, I wrote them down, Off the top of my head, I can't remember where I wrote it. But one of the main tenets of the Karai faith is that people must be familiar with the Hebrew language. The Hebrew is crucial. Hebrew is a crucial part of being a Karai. How do you read the Tanakh if you don't know Hebrew? And unfortunately, there were Karai leaders who already bemoaned the fate of their community, which was not proficient enough in Hebrew. Because how could you be a good Karai if you don't know Hebrew? If only we, Rabbinic Jews, had the same expectation, that people should know Hebrew well. To learn Hebrew, I'm not saying that if someone doesn't know Hebrew, they can't be a good Jew. But part of being a Jew would be to spend time in your life, even if you're coming to it later in life, to study Hebrew, to read Hebrew, to learn how to write Hebrew, to be able to translate things for yourself. Maybe not today. You can make a 10-year plan that I hope at a certain point in my Jewish study, I'll be able to understand texts on my own. That was a central theme of Kari'i faith. But let's back up. I want to go back. So we're talking about oral law. We're talking about the written law. So the Karim, as we know, they believe in only the written law. The Karim form in the Jewish community somewhere around the 8th century. So their golden era is from the year, it could be that I'm making up numbers for you. I believe the year 900 to 1100 is the golden era of the Karim. They have leaders, they have, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a magnificent time in the Jewish community. There are some historians that claim that up to 41% of the Jewish people at that time were Karaim. Whether that number is accurate or not, I don't know, but that was the golden era of the Karet Chachamim. Ever since then, there have been pockets of Karaim rising and, and falling, but that was the major era of the Karaim's history. In recent years, this has led to a big problem. I mentioned to you earlier that it, the study of Karaim is not just theoretical. The study of Karaim is real. In the modern state of Israel, can a Kari'i make Aliyah to Israel? I'm a Kari'i in California. Can I make Aliyah to Israel? 
I live in Israel. I want to get married. I'm Jewish. According to Israeli law, there's no such thing as a civil marriage. Do I go to the Bedin and get married in a rabbinic uh, ceremony that I don't believe in? What are my other options? Christianity? Islam? Well, there's no, what, uh, is Kari an option to take off when you do your marriage contract in Israel? Divorce. Kashrut. We're going to discuss soon about a fascinating lawsuit I have in front of me right now. In Israel, it's illegal to give kashrut to restaurants unless it's first certified as kosher by the chief rabbinate of Israel. After that, you can add all your extra certificates that you want, as they do in Israel. They have a chief rabbinate heksher, and then 300 other hechsherim, about 299 of them which are fake, and then one of them maybe you hope is real, and all of those people, they all collect the checks from the same P.O. box, they never visited the restaurant in the first place. But in any case, that whole setup, now the karaim want to give their own hechsher on food. Are they in contempt of, of Israeli state law? Are they a part of Judaism that has to first have a hechsher from the chief rabbinate they don't believe in? and then put on their hechsher, or can they just grant their own hechsherim? These are issues that plague the Kari community today. And whatever we study about Karim, you have to realize that this is not theoretical. The conversation surrounding Karim and the future of the Karim, it really it affects people's lives today, now, as they live. And so I'm trying to do this with as much sensitivity as I can to get through their history as well as I possibly could. The Karim most likely were founded by a man named Anan, Anan ben David. Anan ben David is a Persian rabbi. Uh, really, it's in, I wouldn't say Persian. He was in, yes, he was Persian, but in that region, Iraq, Iran, Bavel, we'll just call it Bavel. He was a rabbi of Bavel, and he was from the family of the Nasi, so the prince of the Jewish people in exile. And there was politics, major politics, surrounding who would be the next Nasi? Who would be the next prince of the Jewish people? Now you should know, there obviously are two different narratives as to the origins of, of Karaism. So let's start with the Karaim's version and then the Rabbi's version afterwards. Anan ben David, who's known as the Nasi, or the prince of the Jewish community, was born in the year 715. He was a Chacham from the Jewish exilarch family in Bavel, and his family had direct lineage to David HaMedach, King David. In the year 765, the previous Rosh Galuta, the previous exilarch had passed away, and it was time to decide who would be the successor. And because Anan felt that he was the next in line, he was summoned by the Rashi Shiva then, the heads of the rabbinic community, to be the next Nasi. In that period, there was some complications in, in politics. Uh, the, the Jewish community was essentially under control of these yeshivot in Bavel. And the Karaim, Anan, heading them, felt very much that the oral law was a perversion of what the written law was supposed to be. And once he started voicing his anti-rabbinic opinions, the rabbinic establishment shut him down. And that's when he founded the movement of Karaim. Now essentially he was in prison. The reason he was in prison was because you could not lead two Jewish communities. Uh, it's a, it's a, the government wouldn't allow such a thing. And Anan ben David was put into prison with another leader who was a, a Muslim leader, if I'm not mistaken, from the Sunni Muslims. There's four branches of, of Sunnism, and he was the, the fourth theology there. And ultimately, he gives him advice on how to approach the non-Jewish government and convince them that he's his own brand of Judaism. And ultimately, he comes out of prison and is granted by the local government permission to lead his group of Jews in the way in which he wanted to lead them. In rabbinic law, though, 
the story is quite different. The Ravad, the Ravad has an entire conversation in his Sefer Kabbalah about Anan and who he really was. And according to the Ravad, Anan was viewed by the rabbis as somebody who was corrupt, somebody who had no Yirat somebody who perhaps his financial and sexual life were not exactly in line with what a leader of the Jewish people should be. And ultimately they banned him from taking this position and he continued on to doing what he did by convincing the government that he was not part of the regular Jewish community, that he had his own faith. He's not a rabbinate Jew, he's a biblical Jew, a Tanakhi Jew. And because of that, he continued on and did what he did. I'll be honest with you is that both variants of the story might contain truths and both of them are also you know, uh, painting the story the way we would like to hear the story. The bottom line is that we all agree that it was Anan ben David who was the first major organizer of Karaim in history. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that according to some people, there were always groups of Jews who didn't accept the oral law. And Anan didn't create a group of people. Rather, what he did was he banded all these people around him and he turned them into a group that are known as Karaim. Early history records show that there were two groups of Jews, actually. There were Karaim, and there were what they called Ananim. There were those who were Ananites, if I could borrow that word, and Kerites. And only later in history did those two groups fuse together and become synonymous with each other. But there are many historians that claim that this is, he didn't found something, but rather he continued something and perhaps became one of the greatest voices of it. Anan put out a Sefer HaMitzvot, which was, like Betsy mentioned, his oral law. This is his, his understanding of the Torah. And he has explanations of mitzvot, the way they're written. The Karim are famous for saying, the Torah needs no commentary. Everything you need to know about the Torah is already inside of the Torah itself. Now, the rabbinic Jews, we obviously have our rebuttals to that, and what about certain halakhot that are not mentioned, or not clarified, or not delineated in the Torah itself. Uh, those wars, I'm not going to solve them today. But suffice it to say that when Anan ben David put out this book, so he was essentially telling Karaim his opinion on how to understand the written law. Anan is attributed to have, there's a saying attributed to him, and we don't find it in his writings himself. But he would tell people, You should explore the Torah in depth, meaning understand what you need from the Torah, and don't rely on me. Meaning, I'm just sharing, I'm a teacher. I'm teaching you what it says in the Torah, but you do what you need to do anyways. And this is a flagship belief of the Karaim that every person is really responsible for their own oral law. Every person, is an individual, is responsible to study the Torah and to reach the conclusions that they feel they should be reaching from the Torah itself. Now, that's not actually how it turns out. So there is a Mo'etzet Chachamim. There is a group of Chachamim of the Karim even today. Uh, there's a Rabbi Rabbi Moshe. I want to tell you his name is Firuz or, or Faroz. I don't remember his name exactly. He's the Karai uh, Chacham. They call him Rabbi, just lack of better words, but he's the Karai Chacham who's alive today. Uh, the last major Karai Chacham in Egypt was Rabbi Tovia Babayachev. Uh, he, I'll talk about him in just a moment. Uh, he's a Russian Karai who became the rabbi of the Egyptian Karai community. Now you should know, this may sound funny to some, in the world of Karaim there are European Karaim and Middle Eastern Karaim. They don't necessarily identify as Ashkenazi Karaim versus Sephardic Karaim, but they're, let's pretend they're the Karaim of Europe and the Karaim of the Middle East, mostly Egypt and Russia and that region, Karaim of Lithuania. Every one of these communities is different. So they, though they may share many similarities, they're not all the same. 
When our Chachamim were speaking about Kara'im and closeness to Kara'im and Kara'im being Jews and Kara'im being, they were most likely referring to the Kara'im they were familiar with in the Middle East, for example, in Egypt. There were even Kara'im in North Africa. We find records of, not just Egypt, North Africa, meaning Morocco and Algeria and that area. But it seems that that group of Kara'im has faded away. I'm not familiar with any community of Kara'im that still comes from that region. There are Turkish Kara'im. There are a number of different subcategories of Kara'im. What you do find, though, different between the various branches, and this is just my analyzation of history, so I cannot speak on behalf of the Karaim, is that the Sephardic Karaim, can I call them that? The Egyptian Karaim, yes? The Egyptian Karaim, for much of our history, had more cordial relations with the rabbis than the Eastern European Karaim. And I can't tell you which came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't know who was the one who started the fight first. But in Eastern Europe, you find some pretty terrible things, relationships, between the Karaim and the Jewish community. You have Karaim trying to convince the local government that they're not even Jews, meaning we lived here long before the Jews came here, and that's the way that they saved their own communities from anti-Semitism. Because if we're killing the Jews because they killed Yeshu, they killed Jesus, well, we, weren't, we were already here, I mean, we weren't even in Israel then. We are Karaim that have nothing to do with this. And there were many cases in which non-Jewish anti-Semitic governments wrote things like, you know, we despise the Kara'i faith because of its resemblance to Judaism. But they themselves, it's, un, it's incorrect to hate them because of their nationality, because they're not part of the Jewish nation. And you'll find that that attitude of we're not Jews, we're not part of the Jewish community, is, is a really hot topic in Eastern Europe and not a topic at all in the Sephardic community for the most part. This has more recent side effects. So the Karaim, in many cases in the Holocaust, were spared by the Nazis, not always. There are places where the Karaim were massacred just like the Jews were. But there were certain local areas in which Karaim were not persecuted because they're not officially Jews. They were minorities, they didn't have, but they were not Jews. And under Nazi occupation, those who had documentation showing they were Karaim, they were able to get away from the Nazis. You find some Karaite communities that helped the Jews forge papers to survive the Holocaust. You have Jews with forged Karaite papers, and some of those Karaite communities, they said, they made a list of their own Karaite community to show the Nazis, look, those Jews are the ones with the fake Karaite papers, those are the ones you should kill, we're the ones that you shouldn't. And you find some pretty ugly history that's quite recent, it's, it's not so long ago. Uh, not to mention the Lithuanian Karim. The Lithuanian Karim almost are their own religion. I wouldn't even say they're just Jews with no oral law. They're a whole different religion. Today, I'd really like to focus less on the European Karim and more on the Egyptian Karim, essentially because they're the bulk of the Karim who we have today. And then at a certain... Yes? I thought I heard of massacres in Spain with the Karim. Like I, I thought there were cases of that. Betsy is correct. There is all the way back. There are a famous Karaim community in Spain. And you had the flip scenario with Jews and Karim and Karim being massacred in Spain. You're correct. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, this, by the way, the history of Karim is exhaustive. It's, it, it's not a group that just lived for 80 years and died and you could kind of research whatever you want about them. I have in front of me articles and books, but I have a number of books from the Karaim community themselves. So the Kari community has a printing press 
Uh, some of them have been translated into English, so they're Hebrew English or uh, Hebrew Judeo-Arabic and English. And uh, this one, the chief cornerstone, Rosh Pina, is written by Chacham Tovia Babovich. Uh, he's a, a Russian Chacham who came to the Karaite community in Egypt and essentially led them. He was the last of the Chachamim. If I'm not mistaken, he passed away as late as 1956. And this book is a fascinating work. It's translated by a friend, uh, Joel Davidi, who's a historian. And there's a, a Tamih Chacham also, a, a, quite an impressive Tamih Chacham. In fact, he helped me tremendously preparing for this class in the first place last night. I kept him up till almost 5 o'clock in the morning, his time. Uh, but there's so much to be studied and not enough time. It deserves a serious amount of uh, lessons. But because I'm not here to teach you about Karaitism, only to familiarize us with them and their community, uh, these are, are still important works that you might want to look up on your own and order them for yourself. Everyone should use their own shikudat, their own judgment about whether or not it's right for them to be exploring uh, other understandings and approaches of Torah and Judaism. According to the Karim, Anan at a certain point in time leaves Babel, he leaves that region, he goes to Israel. His dream is to live in Israel. And he spends a certain amount of time in Israel until he's summoned to the community in Egypt where he essentially revives this entire Karite movement in Egypt. And if you're familiar, the Jews in Egypt and the Karaites in Egypt, they live parallel lives. So there's the Jewish neighborhood and the Karaite neighborhood. They're all the same neighborhood. It's one street of Jews, one street of Karaites. I have a student of mine. She'll live and be well. He's an older man. Uh, I just visited him recently from very far, safe social distancing. I just sat with him and I asked him about the Karaim in Egypt. He said, we used to work with them. We would go to school with them. He said, we would play with them. They were Jews. Like We didn't eat in their homes. He mentioned that they didn't need their homes. And we didn't pray in each other's synagogues. So that went two directions. Uh, but at the end of the day, they were Jews. They did business with each other, but they were a different type of Jews. Chacham of Yosef, in his book, Yabia Omer, in volume 8, Ibn Ha'ezer, Siman Yud Bet, 12. Chacham of Yosef has a fascinating teshuvah, which we'll discuss later, about whether Karaim are actually Jewish or not. And part of what Chacham of Yosef records is that Karaim who... Um, came back to rabbinic Judaism, not only were they, were they considered Jewish, but you have records of the chief rabbis of Egypt marrying Karai women who had become rabbinites now, and that they were considered mishpachot miuchasot. They were families that were kasher to marry into. This is obviously not the approach of all rabbis, and when Karaim begin to make aliyah to Israel, you'll see that there's a war that rages among contemporary chachamim, but I'm going to get to that a little bit later in my shiur, v'zad Hashem Some say that Anan, his contribution to Karaim was his lineage. So it wasn't, it wasn't just a group of random Jews who didn't believe in the oral law, but here he's lending credibility in terms of his lineage, also in terms of his knowledge. He was a Tamil Chacham, and he lended a tremendous amount of credibility to the movement that even if he wasn't necessarily the founder, but he was perhaps really the cornerstone of this movement. He wrote a number of different books. I told you Sevara Mitzvot, the commentary on the Torah. And there are some other things about him that maybe we'll discuss at a different point in time. The Karim are called other things in literature. So we hear them being called Tanakhim, though that name is not really so popular. Uh, sometimes they're called the Bnei Mikra or the Baalei Mikra, those people who are the masters of the Torah text. It is important that among the Karim, our Talmud is not rejected entirely. So, unlike the Tzidukim or others, the Karaim look kindly upon our Talmud. To them, 
The Talmud is a collection of wise teachings and understandings of the world and of Judaism and of humanity, but that those teachings are not binding. And in fact, uh, there were certain Kari academies, so Chacham uh, Tovia, one of them, who required a certain understanding of Mishnah and Talmud in order to be accepted into his circle of students in the first place. Meaning you can't be part of the opposition if you don't even know what you're opposing. And it's not uncommon to read writings of Karaim in which they freely quote Mishnayot and they freely quote passages from the Talmud. This is a very common occurrence. Even in the fringe elements of Karaim, like those in Eastern Europe, who were haters of the rabbinic tradition. I, I remember hate goes two directions, so I'm not saying who's hating who. But even there you find them quoting, and they were able to interact with our Chachamim in a limited fashion in the same teachings of, of Chachamim. This understanding that every person has to rule for themselves, there's a Keret Chacham. His name is Sal ben Matzliach HaKohen. Sal was one of the famous Karaim Chachamim. And he writes to his students, You should know our brothers, the children of Israel. Who expects from each one of you I'm sorry. Who expects Can you hear me? Hashem says from each one of you to analyze things for yourself and you cannot hide behind the excuse. My rabbis taught me this way. Uh, again, there's a famous Karel Chacham, Chacham Daniel ben Moshe. And he writes, Kol hanishan ha-galut. Anybody who relies on any of the teachers of the exile, so rabbi or, or Karite, without analyzing properly for themselves, there's like somebody who's worshipping a foreign faith. So according to the Karim, it's crucial that people should study things for themselves. Now we obviously know that in our rabbinic tradition that's a value also. And it's very possible that there are rabbinic traditions that we're familiar with in which that's not the case. But I don't feel threatened by these teachings because I believe them to be true. I require everyone to study for themselves and to analyze things for themselves. At a certain point though, there is also the authority of our rabbis, the authors of the Mishnah and the Talmud, which we have accepted upon ourselves. And I, that's important, because though the Karim have rejected the oral law, the Karim are not anarchists. They have their own set of laws and their own understanding of things, and it's important. They have their own Chachamim. So it's not that they don't value scholarship or, or rabbis or leaders, but it is in a different way perhaps than the rest of the Jewish people does. Lately, in the recent Karite history, so there's been a need to try to standardize Karite Judaism. Instead of every person analyzing things for themselves, you kind of have to stand, you know, not everyone studies anymore, not everyone is, has time anymore, not everyone is knowledgeable anymore. And like any kind of standardization, things kind of get uh, changed and they become rules and now you're listening to people again. And that has also been a value that has changed among Karim. For example, if I could think of something in your life that may be similar, Nusach Ashkenaz. Anyone here ever prayed Nusach Ashkenaz before? Okay, somebody say, have you ever used an art scroll Nusach Ashkenaz, for example? Okay, so art scroll, Koran, they're all the same. This idea that there is one type of Ashkenazi prayer book. Some people say, oh, I have a Sephardic prayer book. Which Sephardic prayer book? Is it an Iraqi one, a Moroccan one, is it a Turkish one, is it a Spanish-Portuguese one? Which Sephardim? There's so many types of Sephardim. 
that if you were to try to make one Sephardic prayer book that works for everybody, by the way, Art Scroll has recently done such a thing. If you try to make one Sephardic prayer book that works for everybody, chances are it will work for nobody. By the Ashkenazim, after the Holocaust, a similar thing happened. There's no more Galicianers and Polish and Lit Lithuanians and Russians. Everybody's just the same Nusach Ashkenaz. And the new Nusach Ashkenaz is really that. It's not a traditional Sidur. It contains elements of all kinds of different places. But if you've ever prayed with the real Ashkenazim, uh, how is it in the United Kingdom? We have a German Jewish community? Yeah? Right, I've heard of Minhag Agnia before. Is there a German Minhag in England right now? By the way, I don't know, is it, is it politically correct to call people Yekes anymore? I don't know, because some people view that name as uh, derogatory. No, I don't know, that's why I didn't say it. That's a German Jews. Uh, there is a German Jewish community? Okay. If you go there, you'll see that their Sidur, it's not Nusach, I mean, that's Nusach Ashkenaz, but it's different than Nusach Ashkenaz, other Ashkenazim use. It's like if uh, Middle Eastern Sephardim were to pray with the Spanish Portuguese Sidur, they might be horrified. What kind of Sephardic Sidur is this? Things are different. And so standardizing things always has its challenges, but I'm assuming the Karaim decided that the risks, uh, the benefits outweigh the risks. And you even find, like in Aderet Eliyahu, which is a famous Karaite work, that he talks about the importance of not rebelling against the Chachamim of the Karaim. We have to accept upon ourselves the rulings of the local uh, Chachamim, and those who don't will be excommunicated from the Karaim community. Some argue that Karim have a little more flexibility in terms of their ability to adjust halakha in every generation, something which they claim that we do not have. I mentioned to you there are two more Ikarim that Karim believe in, two more principles of their faith. So the first is to understand the Hebrew properly in its own text. And the second is the centrality of the Ben Mikdash in Yerushalayim. And that brings me to a whole new conversation about Karim. When one goes to visit an Ashkenazi home of Shiva, before we leave the mourner, what do we tell the mourner? Don't tell me the whole sentence. Uh, we say, Hamakom yinachem. Don't say to me, I'm not saying to you either. Hamakom yinachem, that person. Betoch, Shar, Avelet Zion v'Yerushalayim. The mourners of Zion. May this person be comforted among the mourners of Zion in Yerushalayim. Who are Avelet Zion? So wait, where is the Avedet Zion? So I mean, this, the general understanding is, may this person be comforted among all of us who are mourning Zion in Yerushalayim. But really this term Avedet Zion refers to a number of different groups in history. Uh, for example, Hasidim. When you say the word Hasidim, what do you think of when I say Hasid? Rebbe's, fuzzy hats, I don't know, uh, stockings, uh, whatever, uh, whatever things make, one? Strimals, very good, all those things. That's what we think of when we think of Hasidim. But really the Hasidim, those are only the last of the Hasidim. There are two other groups in our history referred to as Hasidim. Who are they? Who are they? In the Talmud you have mention of one group. Hasidim Arishonim. What do we know about them, Lord? They would take an hour before prayer. 
They were really into praying. They would meditate one hour before Amidah, one hour during Amidah, one hour after Amidah. They would, they would uh, pray a tremendous... This is what they were known for. The Chachamim even asked, like, how do they ever have time to do anything else if they're busy praying nine hours a day? So the, when we say Chassidim Harishonim, that's who we're referring to. There's a second group of Chassidim. And they're not Chassidim in Chassidim Mitzrayim. That's actually a much later... Not much later, but I'm not sure that all historians would agree that they really were a separate group at least not in the mainstream Jewish uh, history. I would accept them as a group, but not everyone else. Chassidei Ashkenaz. You heard of Chassidei Ashkenaz? No. Half of the things that you do around the calendar come from Chassidei Ashkenaz. There are so many things that are in the Jewish community, particularly connected to extra levels of ascetism and piety that come mostly influences from Ashkenaz. These Chassidei Ashkenaz are part... We have heard of Biudah Chassid... These are certain groups of, of pious Ashkenazi rabbis who were actually quite morbid, if you read about their understanding of death and obsessions with mourning and all kinds of things like that, that led to a lot of the customs that you have in the Jewish community today. And the last group of Hasidim that we have is the group of Hasidim HaKaronim, if we'll call them that, the Hasidim HaBal Shem Tov. So when Hasidim come along and use the word Hasidim, they're appropriating a term. It's like when the certain elements in the Haredi community talk about the yeshiva world. You heard about the yeshiva world or the Torah world before? When I say the Torah world, it means that my world is the Torah world. But there's a whole bunch of other worlds that are not part of your world that most definitely consider themselves to be the Torah world also. When you take a word like Musar, the Musar movement, Musar is a term that existed way before Rabbi Salanter and the Musar movement. It's hijacking a term, possibly to get whatever positive uh, thoughts are there. When someone is a Hasid, if you go, the biggest opponent of Hasidut, name me the biggest opponent of the Hasid, most famous. The Vilna Gaon. If you go to his tomb, it says, don't go, because he didn't want people at his tomb, but on his grave it says, Harav HaChasid. The Rabbi, the Hasid. Why would they call him a Hasid? He's the opposite of a Hasid. Because that term means something before somebody else took it from us and appropriated it. Musar movement, Hasidut, the yeshiva world. These things have real meanings to them. Uh, the, there was a movement of Avelitzion that were in Jerusalem. They were a group of Karaim that were in Jerusalem. Now they're earlier Avelitzion also. So not all of them were Karaim. Avelitzion were pious Karaim who lived and breathed destruction of the Ben Mikdash all around the clock. Everything was about mourning, wearing black clothing, not eating meat at all inside of the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, many, many harsh fasting and all kinds of things, by the way. I cannot tell you how many of the customs that we have that are connected to the nine days and the three weeks. I'm not now uh, shedding uh, evil on any of those customs, but a lot of those things were in common with Avelizion group, and someone has to wonder if there is any connection. Who knows who got it from where? But there is such a group of Avelizion. And you would think, therefore, that the Avelitzion movement in the consciousness of the Karaim would cause the Karaim to be a Zionistic group of Jews. And I'm not talking about current Karaim in Israel. But when Chacham Tovia in Mitzrayim in Egypt was met with this concept and this idea of Zionism and going back to Israel, he was actually one of the main opponents of Zionism in Karaim history. If centrality of the Mikdash and the land of Israel is so important to the Karim, on which grounds does he oppose Jewish people going back to Eretz Israel and founding a homeland? What is his concern? 
Well, let me ask you this. In the Jewish community, from those who love Torah and mitzvot, what is the concern that they have about those who are not Zionists? What are their concerns regarding Israel, the state of Israel? So the secularism of the state of Israel, I mean, it's a national, it's a nationalistic move, movement, but not a religious one. What is that? What are the ramifications of that? I think one of the concerns is that Israel should be only created when the Moshiach comes, and as he has not come yet, then we should not really have that state. Okay, very good. So there is that attitude. There is that attitude among rabbinic Jews, for sure. I haven't seen such an attitude among Karim, though that, that would be interesting. Why not? Uh, most likely because the teaching regarding Mashiach and the state of Israel comes from the Talmud, and it's not something that they would accept. They're waiting to reveal the end. Uh, you do have concerns that Judaism will be reduced into a nationality. So let me read to you from the writings of Rabbi Chacham Tuvi Babavich. Forgive me that I'm not pronouncing his name well. So he writes the following. We have ceased to regard religion. He wrote it in Hebrew, but I have an English translation. We have ceased to regard religion as the cornerstone of our life. And because of this, the Karaite language and religion has become considerably weakened as a result. There are no specialists, no good teachers. I was right when I said that nationalism supersedes religion. He's afraid. He said, before we are a nation, we are a religion. And I'm afraid that if we give up our religion to go become nationalists, what will be left of the Karai people? But secular nationalism, which often tends to slide into chauvinism, offers shaky ground even for nationalites, uh, nationalities with millions of members who are bound by common territory, language, and culture. More so for such a tiny nation as the Karaites, it will only bring death. Therefore, it is necessary, without waiting for the next generation to take care to imbue our lives and lives of the younger generation with religious faith, if we do not want our nation to disappear from the face of the earth, and essentially in the early years of the state of Israel, the Mount of Karim who make Aliyah to Israel are minimal from Egypt. Because he was afraid the Jews are going to go to Israel and they'll become secular nationalists. And they won't retain their Kari'i faith. I think this concern was shared not just by him, but this concern was shared by many other rabbis uh, all across the Jewish spectrum. He writes something fascinating about the fate of the Kari people. We've locked the doors, the entryways into the Kari faith. Because of that, we are now facing a reality where more Karaites are leaving Karaism, more Karaim are leaving Karaut, with nobody coming in. According to the laws of, of life, there is no body on earth that could be depleted of something without it being repleted somewhere else. He believed very much into integration into the Kari community. It's interesting that Chacham Tovia Babavich grew up poor in an uneducated home. By the end of his life, he spoke seven languages, both dialects of Hebrew, both biblical Hebrew and modern Hebrew. He was a tremendous scholar and one who worked very hard to foster relations between the Kari community and the local Jewish community. 
and his passing, the, the members of the rabbinic community were there, of the Christian community were there, even some of the Muslim community was there. He did his best to try to mend divides as much as you could inside of the Jewish and uh, Karai communities. He also had some unique innovations. So, for example, one of the key things that we talk about with Karim and Shabbat, what do you know about Karim and Shabbat? You cannot have any fire, so your food will not be hot on Shabbat. You can't have any fire, no light in the home. And it says there should be no fire in your home on Shabbat. And the traditional understanding of the Karim is even if you have a light that's on before Shabbat, you cannot leave it on during Shabbat. Chacham Tuve Babavich writes, Bemeshach Shavam Shana, over a period of 700 years, Hayu Akarim Belelot, Hashabad Bachashacha, they were sitting in their homes on Friday nights in the dark. Lohidliku Nerot, Bechoshvam Kizewi Sur, Mikoha Pasukro Tuvaru Esh. They thought incorrectly that Karim are not allowed to have a fire in their home. He said, but our earlier Chachamim did not understand this Pasuk properly. How could it be understandable to us? That a Kadosh Baruch who creates light, that he will stop us from having light in our homes? Adrabah, to the contrary, in every instance, HaKadosh Baruch Hu demands from us to increase light, not to diminish light. And how could Hashem, who loves light, command us to sit in our homes in the day of happiness, in the dark? This is only what it says in Shemuel, that evil people sit in the dark. My grandmother, my my father's mother, she used to always see people sitting in a room and the lights were off. She was like, people sitting in the dark, you're evil people who sit in the dark. Turn on the light. And uh, he believed very much that there were certain things that had to be reanalyzed about the Karim and that there should be light in people's homes on Shabbat. That's a war between the Rabbinites and the Karaites for centuries that disappeared uh, when, he, when he came up. Interesting enough, though, he was not afraid of critiquing rabbinic ideas that had permeated Judaism. He very much opposed people visiting grave sites. He believed that this whole concept of going to the dead and visiting the graves of Sadiqim and all of this is something that's dangerous that the rabbinic Jews brought into Judaism and that he says he wishes that this custom could be abolished. He very much wanted to abolish this minhag, but what can he do? I guess the Karim in Egypt were also Safaradim and they were always with the graves and the lights and the candles and everything else and he, he had a very hard time getting rid of that but he himself wished that that would have not been the case. Uh, part of what we're talking about Shabbat, I'm just throwing as much information at you as I possibly can. There's an interesting note about Shabbat. Uh, we're all adults here, I think all of us here are adults. There's a mitzvah on Friday night between a husband and a wife to be together on Shabbat. The Karim, for example, have the exact opposite understanding of this halakha. If I could read to you from Chacham uh, Tovia's book himself. He writes about Anan. Anan, I'll read to you in English. I have it in Hebrew too. He prohibited sexual relations on the Shabbat on account of what is written in the Torah. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. He draws a comparison between plowing and sexual intercourse and permits the latter only on weekdays and solely for the purpose of procreation. 
Therefore, he also forbids sexual intercourse with a pregnant woman. And to those who counter with a verse and call the Shabbat a delight, to Kalat the Shabbat Oneg from Mishayahu, the Karite sages retort that sexual intercourse on the Shabbat leads to weariness and affliction rather than delight. That's a play on words. The word for Shabbat, enjoying Shabbat, how do we say that in Hebrew? Oneg Shabbat, Oneg Shabbat. If you switch around the letters of Oneg, you see it's not just the rabbis who switch around letters. Oneg is the same letters as nega, suffering, affliction. And so he said that what you, some people consider to be an Oneg, being with one's wife is actually uh, none other than a nega. So this is not something that's unique to the Karaites, but it's something that was among the Karaites. Uh, you know, there's a Haggadah, we're coming up to Pesach. There's an old Haggadah. And this Haggadah, you know, when it comes to the Matzah, you point to the Matzah, and it comes to the Marol, you point to the Marol. You're familiar with the Minagim? By the Pesach Seder? I never remember when to do what. So I always have one person in my Pesach Seder. Here, you hold the Manashevitz Haggadah and you tell everybody when to cover the Matzot, uncover the Matzot. I don't have a head for it. I have one person, that's their job. So you point to certain things, you lift certain things, you uncover certain things, you move the, the, all the ceremony by the Seder Pesach. Why do we do all those things by the Seder Pesach? Who asks questions? To keep the children interested. That's the whole reason we do all of these things by the Seder. It's all to keep the kids excited. So they're de- I'm not saying to get rid of those things, but they're definitely new things that we should add to the Seder that keep children engaged in the Seder. The whole purpose is to tell your children what happened on this day. To make a Seder Pesach that makes sense to your family. So over there, the, one of the Chachamim, it could be one of Chachamim Italia, I don't want to tell you where. He writes, if you don't have Marol for whatever reason, that a man can point to his wife and say, this bitterness that we eat, this terrible thing that we suffer from. And uh, I saw a commentary in the Haggadah, <laughs> and the commentary says, it appears to me in my, uh, in my limited wisdom that this rabbi, lo he must have not been in a good relationship. It's what I deduced from his commentary on the Haggadah. Yes. <laughs> I would agree with that deduction, correct? That I'm not saying, I guess everybody and, and their spouse and how much they suffer or don't from being with them, but among Chachmei Israel, being together with one spouse is the peak of Kedushah, it's the peak of holiness, it's the peak of, of enjoyment and beauty in this world, and definitely we don't agree with the Karim on any of these things. Um, there is an attitude of the Rambam, I know we're reaching the end of the shiur, the Rambam writes the following about the Karaim, and it's important because I'm going to wrap up the shiur with the conversation. So are Karaim really Jewish or not? Are they really part of our people or not? The Rambam writes the following words. Somebody who does not admit to the truth of the oral law. This is not considered the, the elder. How do you translate that in English? The elder who disagrees, the dissenting elder. It's not the one who disagrees with the other Chachamim. That's written in the Torah. He is like the Pikosin. Remember the Pikosin that we mentioned last week? Yeah? He's, the, he's from that category. And who has the right to execute a person who doesn't believe in the oral law? Anybody. Anybody can kill him. Once we know that a person denies the oral law, his status on halakha is. We put him down, but we do not pick him up. What does that mean? Do you know this halakha? The halakha is a... Very good. Uh, so let me give you an example here. He's, uh, you see this epikoros. 
he's in a pit, I don't know, he dug himself a, a 10-foot trench into the ground to bury his potatoes for the winter. I don't know what he's doing there. He's down there designing a swimming pool. Yeah, but a deep one. Olympic-sized swimming pool with no shallow end. And uh, you see his ladder. He's like, oh, hey, Joe, I need your ladder. I want to go paint the wall over there. He's like, yeah, but you have to bring it back in 15 minutes. I have to break for lunch. Says, sure. You take his ladder and you just don't bring it back anymore. And he dies over there of starvation or, or thirst or whatever. That's Malin ben Moridin. You can put him in the pit and you don't have to take him out of the pit. Any one of these people, says the Rambam, you don't need a bedin, you don't need witnesses, you don't need anything, you just need to have an opportunity to kill him and you get a mitzvah for killing him because you've removed, you've removed an evil person from the world. Maybe somebody will help me out with research afterwards if you know your iPhones well. My iPhone is on do not disturb but for some reason people's phone calls still manage to come through. I have no idea how to fix it. The Ramam then continues. Can you hear me? Yes. What, when am I talking about? It's a person who denies the oral law in his actions and his words. And he follows his weak judgment. And his arrogant heart. Meaning, and he's like the tzedukim and the baitusim that we spoke about last week. And anybody else who follows that line of thinking. But the children of those tzedukim and baitusim, and their grandchildren, that their forefathers forced them away from the Torah. It's not the choice they made, but they were educated this way. They were raised this way. And they were born, for example, says the Rambam, among the Karaim. Now it could be their other Gilsaot here. I'm not saying yes or no. And they raised them in the Karai faith. It's like a child that was kidnapped by non-Jews. He has no logical reason why he stays away from mitzvot. He has no, it's not a rejection of Torah mitzvot. He was raised that way. It's not his fault. And even though later we tell this person, really, you're a Jew, don't be like them. And he's familiar with Judaism and their faith. He's still considered a person who doesn't have a choice. He was raised in an incorrect faith. This is the same for anybody who follows in the ways of the Karim, in the ways of their Karim forefathers who were mistaken. The best thing to do would be to help them do teshuvah. And to draw them near to the Jewish people with words of peace. A person should bring them close to the Torah and you should not be swift to kill them because these are people who you want to bring close and to give them a chance instead of executing them. I'm not here talking about executions and killing people. You know, that's not what I came to speak about today. But the words of the Rambam are crucial. And his telling you that people who are 
they're, they're the ones who made a decision to reject the Kadosh Baruch in the Torah. They're in a different category than their children or their grandchildren or their descendants. They're not all cut out of the same cloth. And if there are people who are, they weren't given those choices. They were not educated properly. Even if they had exposure to Torah mitzvot, the job on us is to bring them close. In fact, there is a legend of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Arambam bringing back hundreds of Karaim to Judaism. Now, the Karaim view that episode of history as a forced religious coercion. They don't view it as some ropes of love that brought the Karaim close. But nonetheless, this was the attitude of the Rambam and the house of the Rambam. In this vein, you now have to deal with a situation of Karaim coming to Eretz Israel. So, a few things on this topic. The first and foremost is that this matter is still undecided. It's still undecided. What do I mean undecided? The Chachamim of this generation are, are split up about this conversation. When the Karaim wanted to make Aliyah in the early years of the State of Israel, the main opponent to this was none other than the famous Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank. Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank felt that there were and some pretty harsh words, if you want to look it up in his books, that they have no right to come to Israel. They're not part of our people. We don't want them here. Uh, the ones who wanted the Karaim were David Ben-Gurion, with the backing of Rabbi Uziel. So Rabbi Uziel wanted to bring the Karaim to Israel. And he did what he could, and essentially he was the one who prevailed, and the Karim started coming to Israel. You have among the later rabbis, you have a rabbi named the Tzitz Eliezer. You familiar with Tzitz Eliezer? Tzitz Eliezer uniquely is a student of Rav Uziel in some, to some extent, and he was one of the main opponents of Karim being considered Jewish by the chief rabbinate. Chacham Ovadiah Yosef set out to write a teshuvah in his book, Yabiyah Omer. So he in Yabiyah Omer, I told the famous teshuvah, what did I tell you? Volume 8, uh, Teshuvah 12 in Evan Ha'ezer. It's a fascinating Teshuvah, just to read his sources. Chacham of Yosef is of the opinion that the Karaim, especially those who come from Egypt, are Jews. They are biologically Jewish. And not only are they considered Jewish, but there's also no issues of Mamzerut. Meaning we don't have to worry about illegitimate people being born there. Why? Why were there no problem Mamzerut? I don't mean illegitimate people, it's not the right word to say. Because they're more stringent. Even those who keep rabbinical. How, but how does that help with mamzer? What, what's an example of a mamzer? There's no marriage and there's no divorce. Very good. We're concerned with other Jews that maybe their parents were married, but they never got a divorce because they didn't care about halakha, and the children come out to be mamzerim. By the way, I cannot tell you how many people in this country at least are in that status. They don't even know. They got married with a local rabbi, and then came time for a divorce. They went to court. They didn't go to the bedin. I gave a get a number of years ago. 23 years after they were divorced and already remarried with grandchildren, they got a get. All of those people are mamzerim. Thank God it wasn't my bedin. I was just one of the witnesses on the, on the get. I don't know what happened with the children afterwards. Mamzerut is a real issue. And so what happens? Because the karim, like Rabbi Daniel said, because the karim are not... This is interesting. Because their marriage doesn't count. Why does their marriage not count? Because we don't consider their marriage to be, they're not kosher witnesses in the Bedin. So because of that, their marriage ceremony doesn't count. They don't need halachic divorce. Because they don't need halachic divorce, all of their children are Jewish people that have no issues of mamzerut that can be married. That's the truth. That's what Chacham Yosef is of the opinion, that that is the fact And all of the Karim who come to Bedin and say, we accept upon ourselves the oral law, they're allowed to be married by the chief rabbinate in Eretz Yisrael. Now the Karim view this teaching of the Rambam especially, as somewhat uh, uh, patronizing. So, meaning, we're, you're saying that we're good only because we're bad. You understand how this works? You're saying that we're, we're okay 
because you consider us to be illegitimate at our core. Because of that, we're not good enough Jews to do marriages and divorces. And so, yes, it's nice that you consider us to be Jewish, but it's quite offensive that you consider us to be so not Jewish that even our marriages don't count. And you can imagine to a group of people who take the Torah seriously and marriage seriously and Bible seriously and everything, to tell them that all of their children, are, oh, they're not mamzerim, don't worry, it's okay. What do you mean we're not mamzerim? We've spent hundreds of years trying to marry only other karaim and to teach our children. And not, so they view this, it's met with, with uh, mixed feelings, like, uh, like you would expect anybody else to say, they'll be met with mixed feelings. Chacham of Yosef though made major inroads to accepting the karaim to the Jewish community. I'll tell you the truth. That in my local kila, I have families, Baruch Hashem, that come from Kari uh, heritage and Shevach Le'el, uh, they've come through our bed. Can I say, pray with us, uh, people, uh, uh, good, upstanding members of the Jewish community. There is a Chacham in Eretz Yisrael who opposes this entirely until today. A student, Chavruta uh, of mine is a student of his, his name is Rabbi Eliyahu Abirjel. He should live and be well. He's a famous Tamikram. I'm not a student of his, so you're welcome to agree or disagree with any of his stances. In the 90s, I believe 1994, Chacham Eliyahu made a, a, a went to war, really, against Chacham of Yosef about the Karim. And he said the Karim are, maybe they're Jewish, but they're Mamzerim. And he points to a Ramah in Ebn Ha'ezer. If you want to look, it's at the end of um, Siman Dalid or Hay, maybe Hay, in Shulchan Aruch Ebn Ezer. If somebody wants to look for me quickly while I'm talking, in Ebn Ha'ezer, in uh, the first Siman, in, in Sif Hay, the end of Sif Hay, I think Hay, maybe Dalid, I think Hay. Uh, the Ramah writes that all of the Karaim are Safek Mamzerim. They're Safek Mamzerim. And so when Rabbi Abu Erjel put out this Psaq Halakha that he wasn't willing to marry this couple or whatever happened in that story, the world went to war against him. And he was interviewed on Israeli radio. How dare you say that the Karaim are Mamzerim? He said, listen, I am a rabbi. I work for the chief rabbinate of the state of Israel. My job is to uphold rabbinic law. In the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah writes there's Safek Mamzerim. If you want me and the chief rabbinate to rule against the Shulchan Aruch, you can do whatever you want, but I'm not going to be the one to say it. And since then, he hasn't written anything formal on this topic, so I can't tell you that I'm, I'm accurately presenting his stance. But until these wars surrounding the Karim are, are hot, and it's, it's a big debate. Now, this gets worse when we talk about European Karim. Now, if I could just maybe try to make peace between the two opinions. Some want to understand that the Karim there were periods in their history where they did not have leadership. So they would inevitably go to the local rabbi to get married, even if they were not rabbinate Jews. And because of that, they would, ne they would have to follow up with a rabbinic divorce, which they never did. And that's where this idea of karaim uh, <coughs> being mamzerim, because originally they may have been married by rabbis and only later were there karaim chachamim. Who knows? When it comes to the European Karim, though, there was a big issue, and that seems to be the state of Israel's stance was that the Middle Eastern Karim are Jewish, but some of the European Karim are not considered Jewish. And that meant that these Karim were unable to make Aliyah to Israel in the early years of the state of Israel. Ironically, because this is how Israel works. So Israel makes one law here, and they end up opening up a loophole. So Israel, and like all legal systems are funny, but Israel has a unique set of laws that don't make any sense ever. So these Karim could not make Aliyah to Israel as Jews. So what do they do? They waited until the Russian Aliyah of, uh, you know, the Jews from the former Soviet Union making Aliyah, and then they made Aliyah as Russian Jews. So they weren't Karim anymore, now they were just Russian Jews with Jewish ancestors, and they came to Israel on that Aliyah. So they just waited for the opportunity. Uh, and so today I can't really tell you what is the status of the Karim in front of the chief rabbinate, but Chacham of the Yosef's opinion seems to be very well researched, and uh, seems, seems, and I'm not the one who's going to decide these issues, seems to make a lot of sense to me. 
Um, I wanted to read you one last thing before we call it a day. And that is just an interesting court case. I have it in front of me. The protocols uh, from the Israeli court system. So not so long ago, they're talking about 2011, there was a butcher shop. I believe it was in Ramle, but I don't remember the details. Uh, I think it was in Ramle. And over there they decided to put up a sign that all the meat here is kosher according to the halachic standards of the Kara'i Jewish community. And like I told you, the chief rabbinate requires that in order for you to label yourself kosher. So which of you are in Israel? Uh, Benji, you're in Israel? Yeah, Betsy is in Israel. There are rules, like we don't eat this hechsheh, we only eat that hechsheh. Everyone has the list of kosher symbols they do or don't eat. By the way, all of them are the same. If one of them is not good, all of them are not good, because you should know <laughs> the things that happen over there, you don't want to know. If you think kashrut where you live is bad, you've never seen the kashrut in Israel, how it looks. I mean, over there, you better be able to rely on, on the kosher by ingredients, because if not, you're in big trouble. Uh, so the... Is that the last Saif? Uh, it is the last Saif in Very good. So it's right before Hey. Thank you, Benji. I appreciate it. So it's the, it, Okay, very good. It's the Ramah at the end of Dalit, yeah, because it's a long Siman. It's the Ramah at the end of Dalit and Ibn Ezra. Thank you very much for looking that up. Lamed Zayn. is a Saif. Okay, very good. Um, and over there he writes that there's Safek Mamzerim, correct? That's what he writes there? Correct. So that was essentially where the big divide came here. When you go to Israel, right. we, don't, we, we don't even accept them if they want to come do Teshuvah and join the Jewish community. That's the Ramah's stance. And that is essentially where the divide is between the Chachamim of today on the Karim themselves. Now, when it comes to this court case, so let's say you open up a bakery in Jerusalem. Let's say you want to open up a bakery and you want it to be approved kosher. You know that the community you're serving is the, I don't know, the, the Hasidic community of, give me the name of a Rebbe, I don't know, any Rebbe, that Hasidic community. You know they won't touch food with a 10-foot pole that's supervised by the chief rabbi. To them, the chief rabbi isn't even Jewish. When I met my wife, I remember that she was like, wow, you guys eat things with an OU on them? I mean, OU wasn't considered kosher, the Orthodox Union. That was like, uh, only people in, in, out in the boondocks, like San Diego, would eat something with a hechsher of an OU. Unless it has a lot of Yiddish all over it and fancy flowers around the kosher logo, nobody touches that food. So this, uh, the same thing in Israel. You want to serve a certain population. You know you don't want the chief rabbi certificate. So why pay double? Why pay the chief rabbinate and pay for the badats? So chief rabbinate has a law. You have to pay them first. And once you have their certificate, you can pay for any other cultural certificate you want. And you can find this, I'm sure, in the UK as well. If you look at any bottle of wine that comes from Israel, just count the amount of cultural symbols that are on the back of that bottle. Because you know you want to sell it in four different markets, so you have to pay to those four different markets. So... The chief rabbinate heard reports of this store claiming to be kosher. And they fined this kara'i butcher shop for being in contempt of the law that they have to first pay the chief rabbinate to be kosher and then they can put up their kara'i rules. And this caused a tremendous tumult in Israel. When the chief rabbinate a representative spoke in court, he was telling his story. He said, I walk into the store and they say they're kosher, but it's all taref meat. And they started screaming at him, it's not taref meat, it's taref according to you, but it's kasher according to us. How dare you say that our meat is not kosher? What, who are you? And so ultimately, ultimately, the argument was, can we prove 
that the Karaim are not Jews, their attitude was just the judge wanted to know, how are you different than Chabad? That was an example they gave. How are you different than Chabad? Chabad is another group of Jews with its own belief, it has its own slaughters, its own things. How, how, how are you different than them? And the Karim said, Chabad is a subdivision of the rabbinic Jewish community. We are a completely different branch of Judaism. We don't even believe in the basic tenets of the rabbinic principle. There's nothing in common with us. And ultimately they were making a case that they're not in contempt of this law because the laws of Kashrut, as per the chief rabbinate, don't apply to them. And this is a classic case where uh, another reason why uh, Chacham Tovia was afraid of Karaim going to Israel was he was afraid of how a rabbinic state of Israel, so ironically, he viewed the secular Zionists as rabbinic secular Zionists. They were secular to the rabbinic Judaism. And he was afraid how they would consider the Karaim, how they would treat the Karaim minority in Israel. And ultimately this is still a balagan up until today. There are some unique personalities, maybe I'll forward you some articles in the Google Classroom. I would love for you on your own time to research a little more about the Ashkenazi Karaim or the Eastern European Karaim. There is a famous um, Ashkenazi Karaim by the name of, what did I tell you everybody his name was yesterday? Uh, Avram Firkovich. Avram Firkovich was an unusual Karaim Chacham. Uh, he even has correspondence with the third Lubavitch Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek of Lubavitch, uh, with a lot of respect and a lot of, but at other times he was very biting. As is familiar to you, the Karaim were close to the Maskilim. They were very close to the enlightened Jewish community. They were both into the Tanakh and the Hebrew grammar and the Hebrew language. And ultimately, they viewed both of them together. They despised very much the Hasidic community. The Hasidic Jews had stereotypes of being uneducated, of being dirty, of being uh, intellectually uh, weak. And so there's a lot of stereotypes that the Karim and the Maskilim accepted about the regular Hasidim. But perhaps... I told you there's one more thing, so just allow me to do one more thing before you go. I wanted to show you a teaching, a rabbinic teaching from the other side. And that is, there is a chacham. His name is Rabbi Yosef Shalomo del Medigo, or otherwise known as the Yashar of Kandia. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. And he writes the following, he was a Kabbalist from Italy. Now you know that the Italian Jews were a lot more open in their thoughts than other people were, and that's why so many Italian Chachamim keep getting in trouble with the rest of the rabbinic establishment. But he writes the following to his students. Ben Kachmri, nonetheless my children. Al titosh Torah imecha. Don't abandon the Torah of your mother. Lilmod b'sifrei ha-karayim kulam. You should study all the writings of the Karayim. Uvesefer ha-mitzvot v'aderet, and especially these two works of, of the early Karayim scholars. And you will end up being a glory and a splendor to all of those who see you. If you accept my words. He said, you have to study Karai texts to understand the Tanakh properly, to understand the words properly. Many Karai Chachamim were experts in Hebrew grammar. Now, I'm not telling you that that's accepted upon the rest of Chachamim. Among our rabbinic champions, the Chachamim were viewed as the perversions of the, the perverters of the Torah. They don't have any clear understanding of the Torah. They don't know how to read Hebrew properly, or else they would come to the same conclusions as our rabbis. But with that, I didn't come to solve the problem. The reason I didn't come to solve the problem is because it's still a problem. It's still a problem. The problem in the Jewish community today is still, after all these hundreds of years, we have a very old sect of Judaism. It's not like the other sects you're familiar with. They believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They believe in the sanctity of the Torah. Many of them even respect our Chachamim. There are stories of Karim kissing our Chachamim's hands in Egypt. They respected them, but they disagreed. And I'm asking you, 
Sometimes people tell me, if only the reform movement did this, and if only the conservative movement did that, and if only these Jews and the Hasidim did, and the Sfaradim and the Ashkenazim did, and I'm asking you a question. Though some of those movements don't even believe in the Torah the way we believe in the Torah. If I could get all the Jews to believe in Hashem, and to believe in the Tanakh, and to reject the teachings of our rabbis, but at least kiss their hands, would you accept them into the Jewish community? Would you be willing to bring them close? Or do they have to be just like you? for them to be here with you? And that's a real question that we have to answer. Am Yisrael has to do a cheshbon nefesh. Am Yisrael has to stop and think, are we really honest when we tell people, if only you were a little more like this, you would be able to be with us? Because it's really not true. You know, I thought when I married my wife, I thought that I was marrying into a family of Hasidim, so of course there were problems that Hasidim, they didn't want Savaradim, you know all the balagan that happens around there. Okay, we got over that. And then I married into a wonderful family of beautiful Hasidim, really. And then I noticed, you know, that even among the Hasidim, they don't marry each other? This Hasidu doesn't marry that Hasidu, doesn't want that Rebbe, doesn't want this Rebbe, doesn't want... I think to myself, I thought it was all of you against us. Now it's all of you against you. That's what Amisel looks like to the rest of the world. Then what's the difference? Let's be honest. What's the difference between this Vichar Hasid and that Stutsky Hasid? And this? What's the difference between them? The only difference? This one wears a strimal and a tilt to the left, and this one has a black strimal and a brown strimal, and this one wears white socks on Shabbat, this one black socks on Shabbat. Guys, for that, you're not going to marry my child? That's the reason? That's the reason you won't marry each other? You have to stop and ask them a question. It sounds humorous, it's comic, but it's tragic. I don't think that we should accept people who don't believe in the oral law as identical to us and accept Eduyot and Bedin. Of course we have a rabbinic law that is our guiding force in life. But let's be honest. If they were just a little more like us, would we accept them? Because the answer is no. Our history has shown us that whenever people are just a little bit different from us, we're willing to wage war against them. And that, Rabotai, sets the stage for next week's class. Next week we're going to discuss the wars between the Kabbalists and the non-Kabbalists. And I don't know who was anti-who, but I can tell you that that is one of the ugliest wars in our history. And that war continues, and it's in my Because I can tell you, already now, so don't get excited for next week. I cannot prove to you if Kabbalah is authentic or it's not authentic, and I'm not going to prove to you who wrote the Zohar, who did not write the Zohar. What I can tell you is these are all Chachamim. Chachamim believe in the same God. Chachamim believe in the same Torah. Chachamim who for the most part, I'm saying honestly, for the most part believe in the same approach to Torah mitzvot. Yet because of a detail, maybe a major detail you'll argue, can get along with each other, can pray with each other, can stop persecuting each other. And you ask yourself, so when is it going to end? If this is what our role models do, so where are we? That's our job. God willing, I'll meet you next week for that to you, here at this time, in this place, hopefully in Yerushalayim, but if not, in San Diego and in the UK and everywhere else in the world we are. Thank you so much for learning with me today. I'm here to answer any questions that anybody may have or any comments after the show.